So you've made it through another day. Most of you are still here. That's good. We've managed to keep you here. That is the good news. Um, I was thinking, coming over here tonight, how the weather today may be a very good reflection of your own inner experience today. Um, I got up this morning thinking, oh, a beautiful, warmish spring day in New England. And of course, moment by moment, hour by hour, it changed, right? Just as you may be expecting to have a certain experience on your cushion, and lo and behold, the weather suddenly changes, unpredictably, uncontrollably. So sometimes we it's helpful to think of our practice like weather. It's not as personal as we sometimes imagine. So last night Jack talked about the purpose of our practice, this development of wisdom and compassion. Tonight I'd like to talk uh, a little more um, about what's needed for this development to take place, what is actually needed in our practice for wisdom and compassion to be developed. What can we do um, to help that process occur? So I'd like to begin with a story about um, a time, oh, five or six summers ago when I was doing a road trip through... New Mexico, with a, through northern New Mexico with a dear friend. And we were, it was just one of those perfect summer vacations. We were just letting ourselves sort of float around without a big plan, without a big agenda, but just being delightfully surprised day, day to day by um, what occurred and the beauty of the scenery and finding rivers to swim in and picnics. It was a very carefree, happy time. And uh, we were driving and we stopped for gas at a a roadside gas station, kind of a a low-key operation out there in the countryside. And um, we were just filling up the tank and whatnot, and I happened to see by the register there was this little, like, box of little, like, fortunes, take a fortune. So I I gaily picked up a fortune, and I opened it and read it, and it said, a major life crisis awaits you. Don't imagine that you can't lose all your money. You can. And I'm like... Oh, my God. It was a very sobering kind of uh, moment where it was a, a little bit of a reminder, you could say, that as happy and as gay as we were feeling in, in that vacation time, that we also knew in a deeper part of ourselves that it was all going to change, that this happiness, as much as we like to imagine that our happiness, when we do find it, is going to stay, that it's not going to always be there. It is going to change. And that we don't know what the future will bring. And that inevitably in every life, some kind of crisis will happen, some loss, some unexpected accident, some death, some event, some 
some kind of crisis will occur. And it is not a personal failing that this happens, but simply the way it is for all of us. So part of our koan in this life is how to deal with that in the face of this vulnerability that we all share to change, to aging, to loss, to death, to accident, to illness. How are we to deal with this? Right now in our culture, the search for security is very pervasive, isn't it? We now have a Department of Homeland Security. We don't even know if they're doing their job or not. (laughs) But we're told they're on duty. We're being sold insurance against every possible kind of event, identity theft insurance. (laughs) Well, what will that do for you? We're never sure. We have suicide bombers. We have terrorists supposedly coming across our borders, along with many, you know, very desperate, good-hearted people. How are we to tell the difference? We have a possible pandemic on the horizon. Bird flu is coming our way. How are we to deal with all of this? And what the response is, is often an increase in our sense of of, uh, fragility and vulnerability. More efforts to protect ourselves, more aggression, more rationale for uh, more defense spending, more violence, more walls. We'll build a wall along the southern border. We're not building a wall along the northern border. I don't know why that is. (laughs) But walls are being built, just as they were in China. You know, the Chinese built the Great Wall, and I have been to the wall. It is a great wall. And, <laughs> and, and of course, it had limited effectiveness against the Mongol hordes as soon as airplanes were invented. That was kind of, you know, it. But we do try to meet our sense of insecurity through all these measures. For the Buddha himself, when he was, before he was the Buddha, as Prince Siddhartha, it was the th- what are called the three heavenly messengers which brought to his attention this uh, vulnerability and fragility that was part of his life, and he didn't know it. The three heavenly messengers, what were they? Old age, illness, and death. And it was the sight of these and the understanding that this was in some way his fate as well that provoked him to leave his home and go on a search. And so he did. And he found what he was looking for. He found a resolution to his own sense of vulnerability and fragility to the inevitable changes that we face as human beings. And he taught what he found, and he has helped many people also find that sense of um, 
a protection that is not dependent on outer conditions. And we must each find this resolution for ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. No teaching or teacher can do it for us. We must find this resolution for ourselves. A woman I know who is a nurse in uh, San Francisco, she's also a a, a student of Dharma, and so she was writing about what she sees in her own practice as a nurse in in some of her patients when they are faced with illness or with uh, aging and loss of capability. She says, in my work as a nurse, I notice people sometimes view following a healthy lifestyle as a lucky charm. I'm going to eat right, I'll do yoga, I'll take my supplements, and nothing bad will ever happen to me. When we hear someone has died, we may try to distance ourselves from our own inevitable demise by reflecting on aspects of our lifestyle that keep us safe. We may think, well, she smoked, so that's why she got lung cancer. I don't smoke, so I won't get lung cancer. I'm safe from that one. We are trying to control things in our lives. We are upset when life does not bend to our control. That is the ordinary human experience. We say to ourselves, I will do the research, I will do everything right, and it will work. And if it doesn't, I will sue. (laughs) This is how we respond to dukkha in America. I'm suffering, so someone must be to blame. It doesn't occur to us that there might be no one to blame, not even ourselves. It might just be the nature of the way things are undependable, unworthy of our confidence, and impermanent. So she goes on to talk about a sutra, which I want to talk about tonight. It's called the Mangala Sutra, and it was taught by the Buddha as a a teaching on how to find true protection and true security in this life. In the days when he was teaching, mangala is the word for a protective amulet, much like what we would think of as like a rabbit's foot or a St. Christopher medal or something that we would wear that would give us a sense of protection. So this was his offering of a protection that we can learn and abide in. So he said, In the Mangala Sutta, this is where true protection is found. It is in the cultivation of three qualities of mind and heart. The three qualities are the quality of one, non-harming, of living a life of sila, of of ethical uh, guidelines for living, The second quality is that of concentration or samadhi, knowing how to collect and stabilize our attention in present experience through the cultivation of this power of mind called concentration. And the third quality he taught was insight or punya, 
wisdom, insight, the cultivation of liberating insight, seeing deeply into the truth of our experience, thereby freeing the heart. So in this sutra, he is telling us that when in practice we give equal attention to each of these things, we are creating for ourselves an inner world of security and protection that is independent of changing conditions. In this sutra, he lays out the path of practice as the cultivation of these three qualities. And he concludes, They who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. Living a life with an ethical foundation, with the foundation of of non-harming in our in our actions, in our behavior, in our thoughts. This is a blessing and a protection. Knowing how to cultivate calmness of being and happiness of mind through concentration is a blessing and a protection. Seeing deeply into the truth of our experience, liberating the heart, is the practice of insight. It, too, is a blessing and a great protection. So this is what I want to explore with you tonight. I recently um, bought a home in the high desert of Arizona. And for the first time in my life, I have a garden mostly a garden because I have planted a garden. I've become very interested in the last few years in trees. Now, this is quite radical for a person like myself who has lived mostly in cities all my life. I grew up in New York, and I've been pretty much an urban dweller. So I have planted now 18 trees, and I've become completely um, fascinated by trees. I mean... They're all around us, right? But for some reason, I've just become very um, interested and, and rather in awe, I would say, of trees, perhaps particularly trees in the desert because of the arid conditions. And I have seen these trees that, you know, have started this high, and now they're 12, 15 feet tall in only a few years. I think trees in the desert, when they're given a little water and because of all the sunshine, they grow very rapidly. So as I watch them grow, I imagine their roots going very deep into the earth to find water and to find nutrients. The reason I'm telling you this is that training our mind in sila, samadhi, and punya is like growing a firmly rooted tree. When you think about it, a tree has different parts to it. It has roots, it has a supporting trunk, and it has a crown of branches and leaves. And a tree is not a tree without all three parts. 
In the same way, we could say that our spiritual practice is not complete without these three aspects. Sila, the foundation in ethical behavior. Samadhi is like the trunk of the tree. Sila is like the roots of the tree. Samadhi is like the trunk of the tree. And Panya is like the crown of the tree. All three aspects need to be present for it to be called a tree. In this understanding, we could see that when we only cultivate samadhi, our practice is not complete. We could say that a thief or a murderer might have a lot of samadhi, but without the foundation in ethical behavior, no good will come of their actions. Instead, they are creating more suffering. Likewise, we could say that living a moral life by itself does not necessarily lead to awakening. It's not enough just to be a good person. It doesn't necessarily lead to deep insight. The Thai meditation master Buddhadasa said, morality by itself stops well short of the elimination of craving, aversion, and delusion. Therefore, it cannot do away with suffering. Likewise, insight by itself is not enough. There is tons of insight in this world, more and more every day, but much of it is not embodied, not integrated into our being, so it has no power. A simple example, we've all heard the, the saying of Jesus Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a deep insight. But is it lived? Is it embodied? Do we see it actively you know, being lived in the world? Unfortunately not. So it doesn't really have much power. For our practice to be truly useful, then, we need to attend to all these three aspects. I'll talk a little bit more about each aspect, and then we'll talk about the balance of these qualities in our practice and hopefully in your practice. So the root, the foundation of practice, whenever you come on retreat, we always begin with the precepts, with inclining the mind towards the possibility of living, um, cultivating wholesome qualities of mind and heart, qualities of non-harming, qualities of generosity, kindness, compassion, patience, forgiveness, all these qualities of mind that develop if we attend to them, develop when we cultivate them. So we do metta practice. We talk about the ethical foundations. This is uh, an essential foundation of our practice. It is good for people that we are in relationship to, obviously. It is good for the world around us when we are acting with kindness and care and patience and tolerance. 
And it is also good for our own well-being. It helps us very much progress in our practice. There's a a story from the Jataka tales, um, which are said to be stories about the Buddha in previous lives. And Sharon Salzberg tells one of these stories in her book on loving kindness. And this is a story about a king who one day offered half of his kingdom and the hand of his daughter in marriage to any man who could steal something without anyone at all finding out about it. The announcement was proclaimed throughout the land, and many young men started showing up with various items. Somebody would come up and say, I have a ruby necklace that I stole, and nobody knows about it. And the king would shake his head, no, no, sorry. Somebody else would come up and say, I have the most splendid chariot that I stole, and nobody knows about it. king would shake his head, no, sorry. Everybody got a little confused until one day a young man showed up with nothing. He said, I don't have anything at all. The king said, well, why not? The man said, because it is not really possible to steal anything with absolutely nobody knowing about it, because I myself would always know about it. This was the right answer. The king had been looking for an heir with wisdom. It is a piece of wisdom to understand the consequences of our actions for ourselves as well as for others. When we sit down to meditate and we have a mind that is racked with shame or guilt or remorse or regret, when we're locked into a struggle with something in our past, it's very difficult to concentrate. Some Asian teachers have said about us as Western practitioners that... um, because we're so eager just to practice the meditation part and we don't really want to pay much attention to anything else, they say that it's like we are like people trying to row a boat that is tied to a dock, that we're not going to get very far unless we do pay some attention to our behavior, the ethical foundation of our lives. And we certainly can more easily concentrate when our minds are not caught up in difficult mind states, when we're not caught up in conflict, we're not caught up in struggle. A happy mind is a mind that easily concentrates. So this quality of samadhi or concentration, we have been instructing you in the last few days on primarily on cultivating this quality, using the breath, using the body as the primary anchor for your attention, the primary anchor for the cultivation of a certain ability to focus the mind, aim the mind, focus the mind, and steady the mind in this over time sustaining the attention on just one thing. 
And it is not something that you can force. I know many of you in in these few days have been struggling with what is the right effort needed to cultivate this kind of concentration. If we push too hard, we end up defeating ourselves. We get locked into a struggle trying to get rid of everything else and just be with the breath. If we don't make the effort, then we're wandering all around. We need a kind of um, delicate effort in coming to the breath. And it, it partly has a kind of yielding quality. Instead of trying to stay with the breath, if we can think of yielding to the breath as a kind of surrender to what is present rather than as a demand that we're putting on ourselves to get rid of things and only be with the breath. It helps when we have this um, understanding of this as a skillful means, that we can incline our mind to yield to the breath, to yield to the steps in our walking meditation, to yield to whatever is occurring in the body. I'd like to talk a little bit about this first step in aiming the mind, in turning our attention inward. This is such an important, uh, and there's a significance to this turning of our attention inward. We come on retreat and we have been so busy in our lives, engaged very much with the external world, and suddenly we're sitting on a pillow and we're asked to turn our attention inward. The psychologist C.G. Jung said, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. And when we look inside, we do not realize the significance of this turning of our attention towards our experience. But it is the beginning of the journey of awakening. Awakening cannot happen without this willingness to turn our attention inward. We're learning in that movement something very important, and that is that we can... uh, begin to relate to our experience rather than react from our experience. We can begin to relate to our pain, to our fear, to our confusion, to whatever is arising inside of us. We can make it an object of our attention. And this is a significant um, understanding to have in meditation. Because most of the time in our lives, we're completely lost in our experience and we're just reacting from that. We are identified with our experience and reacting from it rather than relating to it. When we begin to relate to our experience, we are beginning to cultivate a relationship of greater freedom, greater choice. But it can be quite disorienting at first to make that shift in our attention. It is a radical reorientation of our attention inward. And we may feel kind of lost. The writer Andre 
Jeed wrote, One doesn't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of shore for a very long time. And that's kind of like it is on a meditation retreat. We are losing sight of our usual habits. What are our usual habits? Trying to manipulate, manage, control, get away from this, get more of that. We are losing sight of those habits, and it can be quite disorienting at first. But if we are willing to go on this journey, if we are wanting this journey, it takes reorienting ourselves. And over time we learn that we have another capacity to call on, and that is called the capacity to concentrate, to bring this quality of directing our attention to an object of experience and sustaining our attention on that experience over time. And that is the beginning of cultivating this quality. It's a power of mind which lets us actually learn how to be present with our experience, learn how to be more free in relationship to our experience, learn the nature of this mind and this body. This concentration, this ability helps us to be present over time with all kinds of experience. It is, you could say, a way of saying yes to our experience. So much of our lives we are spent in uh, resistance to what is occurring or in avoidance of what is occurring. When we shine the light of our attention inward, we are beginning to say, yes, there is pain now. It's like this. Yes, the breath is being strange now. It's rough now. It's like this. Yes, this is what is true in this moment. Yes, I see you. Yes, I feel you. A poem by uh, a woman named Pesta Gertler. Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones. The old wounds, the old misdirections. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. This is a a way of reorienting ourselves to our experience, seeing that our experience is the means by which we learn, and it is part of our sacred journey of healing and liberating ourselves. Now, one of the attitudes of mind that is very helpful when we turn our attention inward, and we have mentioned it several times here, is that of cultivating this quality of mind that has a gentle curiosity to learn from our experience so that we can bring this kind of curious attention, not just clinically cold attention, but a kind of gentle, affectionate curiosity 
to any object of experience, whether it's the breath, whether it's a pain in the body. Investigating pain can be a a real journey of, of learning. Any of you here have pain in your body today? <laughs> yeah, it comes with the territory. And it's so counterintuitive to be asked to be present with it, isn't it? Why would I do this to myself? What is the point? Why don't I just run outside, go home, watch television? That would be a better way to spend my time. I'm sure you've had these little arguments with yourself at times. But actually, learning how to be present with difficult experience is part of the journey. It's part of our learning. It's part of how we find this true protection and security that the Buddha found. So we bring this curiosity to pain. We have a pain in our knee, a pain in the back. Where is it? How big is the pain? What is it actually made of? Have you looked? Have you felt it with your attention? Is it a solid something? Or if you really look at it with this gentle curiosity, can you find in there all kinds of sensations? Burning, tingling, pulsing, throbbing, searing, stabbing, all kinds of sensations that might be present there. And and we find we can actually be with it over a period of time. What happens to it as we attend to it? And what's amazing, and it's always been amazing to me, is that with concentration we can actually be with pain and at the same time have a real sense of calmness, a real sense of openness, a real sense of presence. It's a paradox. And when we concentrate on the breath, it can be very calming and it can become very blissful at times. Because in those moments when we are truly concentrated, the hindrances are not present. The hindrances of mind that uh, we will be talking more about tomorrow. Now we can go very far in practice with this quality of concentration. Everywhere from learning how to calm ourselves by focusing on the breath, by focusing on our present experience, whether it's eating or walking or moving. This is um, a very useful skill to have in the middle of our lives because it instantly brings us into a, a state of greater unity with ourselves, greater calmness, greater sense of well-being. If we develop concentration to the exclusion of mindfulness, then we develop deeper and deeper states of absorption. That is not what this retreat is concerned with but it is a possibility of concentration. And sometimes, because these states become very interesting, very blissful, very happiness-producing, we can think, well, that's it. I've arrived. This is nirvana. Only to discover that when that state has gone, we are back with the same suffering that we began, that it is not a liberating state, but only a temporary state of happiness. So that is concentration. Then there is insight. The classic 
definition of insight is insight into what are called the three characteristics of reality. The fact that everything is impermanent, the fact that there is no reliable source of happiness in changing conditions, and the fact that it is not personal, that there is a sense of no locatable self that is partaking of all these experiences. But there are many kinds of insights, and when we sit down to meditate, there are many useful insights that come that are not necessarily the three, only the three characteristics. We have insights of a psychological nature. We have insights into our life situations. We have insights into the meditation practice. We have insights into how our mind is operating. And most of these insights come not because we are trying to produce them by thinking about them, this is what the Buddha called unwise attention, the, the belief in that the way to solve our problems is by thinking about them. And of course, on a meditation retreat, it's a little bit tempting, isn't it? With all this quiet time, you finally have time to think about things. But actually, it's not as um, productive of insight as the capacity to still the mind, to quiet the mind, to focus and concentrate, out of that, the most beneficial insights are born. With the cultivation of these qualities over time, it makes it possible for us to see more deeply underneath the surface of our experience. So we begin to see the changing nature of all experience. We begin to understand what the emptiness of self means. And we begin to really understand that all this changing phenomena are not a reliable source of happiness. The greatest thought, the most fantastic experience we could possibly have, or the worst crisis we could ever find ourselves in, the most difficult mind state, all of these are marked by these three characteristics. So over time and through practice, these insights become a living reality, not just ideas in our head, but a living knowing. We know them to be a description of all things, all that arises in our mind and body, all that arises in the external world. And this is a significant moment in practice when we have this insight into the three characteristics. It frees us from trying to grasp onto conditions that are basically ungraspable, from looking for happiness where it cannot be found, and shows us how it is we suffer and how we can free ourselves. So, now I'd like to talk a little bit about the importance of the balance of these qualities. A common thread in all the Buddhist traditions is 
the emphasis on finding the right balance between concentration and insight. The Buddha gave a talk about this subject. And in that talk he said, there are four kinds of people. The first kind is the kind of person that is well-established in both concentration and insight. They're nicely balanced. And his advice to that person was to continue their practice because obviously it was working well for them. The second kind of person is that person who is well-established in concentration but has no insight. The third kind of person was the kind that has lots and lots of insight and no concentration. And finally, the fourth kind that has neither concentration nor insight. Of course, most of us imagine that's probably us. I would say that when I started practice, I was definitely in the third category, the person who had tons of insight. I mean, I thought practice was just the most intensely interesting thing I had ever come upon, that I could just sit there and, and have insights, one after the other after the other. I was never bored when I started this practice. But what was sorely missing was a certain ability to focus, to concentrate. There was very little calmness of being. So luckily, right here at IMS, I had some very good teachers who kept bringing me back into my present experience, teaching me how to settle down and how to allow the process to unfold, not to do the process or to demand that it deliver all kinds of interesting insights. So that over time, in my process, all the drama settled down and a certain level of calmness did develop. And with calmness, I could relax and I could begin to actually see the changing nature of moment-to-moment experience. And over time, I came to very much trust in this process of practice. The process of meditation, I discovered, has a timing of its own. It has an intelligence of its own. And when we can yield to its timing, its intelligence, it does us rather than we doing it. So what about when there is more concentration than there is insight. This is sometimes uh, a little bit true at the beginning of a retreat when there's not a balance of energy and attention where you have, you have come in and you're, you're kind of um, uh, shocked into a kind of dullness and stupidity. You're missing all your usual stimulation, all the usual ways of orienting yourself, And so you may find yourself in a kind of trance of meditation where you're following the the breath and it's, it's kind of pleasant, but there's a certain dullness to it. And over time, that will shift. But one of the things that can help 
if you find this happening in your practice, is to awaken your interest, to awaken more energy. We'll talk about working with sleepiness, but this has, this, it's also important to ask ourselves, what is it that motivates us here? What did we come here for? What is it that we really want to know? What are we curious about? What is interesting to us about this practice? I find that as those kinds of questions can often awaken a lot of energy. And so there's uh, not that, that quality of just drifting into this pleasant, dull state. Albert Einstein, when asked if he attributed his discoveries to his intellect, said no. He didn't think of himself as being that smart, he said, only perhaps he had greater curiosity than other people. So I think that curiosity in this practice is a very useful quality. What are we curious about? What do we want to find? There's a sutra from the Chan tradition of 6th century China which says, These two concentration and wisdom, are like the two wings of a bird. If their practice is lopsided, you will fall from the path. To one-sidedly cultivate concentration without practicing insight is called dullness. To one-sidedly cultivate insight without practicing calmness is called being crazed. (laughs) Dullness and craziness although they are different, are the same in that they both perpetuate an unwholesome perspective. So we need a balance. So this teaching of the essential ingredients of practice of sila, samadhi, and punya, this is one map of many maps of the territory of meditation practice. I think it's a useful map. It's simple, not too much to remember. It's not a very long list. There's only three things on it. And we can really see, I hope you can see, in your own practice how these are working. Can you reflect on your practice and think, well, which one is strongest? Which is perhaps needing some development? Where have I not been focusing my attention? What might I do to bring a little more attention to one of these areas? Which one needs development? When I started my practice way back in the 70s and had no real knowledge of the teachings of Dharma, I happened to stumble into a Zen center and um, was really quite clueless, but I was hoping for some instruction. And the most I ever got in the way of an instruction, I mean, I loved the chanting and the bowing, and I could see that there was something really amazing going on, but the instructions were a little weak. The only instruction that I can remember ever receiving was an instruction at the beginning of the meditation period. Somebody would shout, die on the pillow, die on the pillow. And I would think, yes, yes, that's it. 
I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to sit there. Well, I almost died, but not in the sense that they were instructing. So I was very relieved when I found this tradition that actually comes with very useful instructions. (laughs) Things that I can practice like sila, samadhi, and panya. They are not theoretical, but very practical things that we can practice. So if you look at these, you can always have a way of asking yourself, is my practice complete? Is is my practice on track? So I offer them to you in that spirit. And I will close with these words of the Buddha. Concentration suffused with ethical conduct is very fruitful. Wisdom suffused with concentration is very fruitful. The mind suffused with wisdom is liberated. So I will stop there for tonight. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on May 21, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.